listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. came my way recently uh, about the difference between pre-climb or early climb up the mountain of spirit and then descent or actually getting off the mountain of spirit and what's you know what's the difference and my first uh, response to that was that there's really no difference in the ultimate sense that there's no mountain um, that everything that we uncover uh, descending is basically, uh, has always been there. In, in other words, there's a way we become more of what we have always already been. We're just no longer divided. We no longer think there's a, or see the situation as a pre and post awakening. Instead, what we recognize is that it's literally been under our nose the whole time, that this is just a way of seeing through practice the world a little differently. I've sometimes equated it to, do you remember those things? This is especially in the early and mid-90s. They had these little um, things that you would look at, and if you slightly crossed your eyes, it would go three-dimensional. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, those thing, that's kind of it. With practice, you suddenly learn how to look at these things that normally you would, you would see as gibberish or you, or you would see as, as being nonsensical. They, they don't make any sense. It's just an abstract, you know, repetitious pattern that you don't get. But then when you begin to practice looking at it in just the right way, it takes on a whole new kind of clarity. Similarly, Awakening kind of works in this way. Coming down the mountain, we just learn, you know, how to look at the world a little bit differently. And it's not that we have to force anything. You could almost say the world presents itself a little bit differently. So that there is a difference, but there's really no difference. On our way down, and I really want to kind of focus on this a little bit uh, this evening... I want to focus on what that process can kind of look like. What uh, the unfolding of uh, an awakened approach, what an undivided, sometimes I call it that, an undivided approach towards being can look like. When we are no longer addicted to our habitual leans, we're no longer, you know, uh, addicted to avoiding anything, nor are we addicted to reaching for anything. And in that process, what we, what we can do is we can begin to align or realign ourselves with what's really, really potent within us. This impulse to wake up, this impulse towards freedom, is nothing less than the universe trying to burst through. 
not only allowing for this to happen, but consciously meeting that grace shifts everything. And it doesn't mean we won't experience pain. I got news for you. You will experience pain. Pain is something you will always experience. Your relationship to it can shift, though, in really powerful ways. I say this repeatedly, but this is one of the best reasons we should go on long retreats. We should spend more than just a day, at least, you know, a couple of days. Uh, um, uh, better yet, if you can go for like a, a traditional Zen Sashin, a seven-day, or Vipassana, a 10-day. Those are really, really powerful because what they do is they put us in direct touch with physical and or emotional pain. And you learn to listen to that voice, that little voice of pain. You learn to hear it in ways, instead of it saying, you know, run away, run away, run away. You instead begin to hear that voice saying, change is coming. Change is coming. Can pain, either emotional or physical, begin to inspire and inform something deeper within us? If you can let your pain physical or emotional, begin to cook a little bit. You see it as an invitation. Rather than something to be avoided, it's something, believe it or not, to be welcomed. It doesn't mean you cause it. It doesn't mean you indulge it. It doesn't mean you grasp it, push it away. It means you make yourself available to the universe as it is. You become fearlessly engaged in a life that integrates this clarity, that integrates this opening, this shift in perspective. And in so doing, you become fearless. If you are indeed fearless, what's there to fear? Nothing. If you had nothing to fear, would you live differently? Yeah, most people would. And so this is kind of this, I mean, I know I'm just weaving all sorts of stuff in here. The fabric that's kind of taking shape, though, um, is something that doesn't tear. It's the Buddha's robe. At least that's one way of looking at it. Now, whatever concepts you have around that whole Buddha's robe, let them go. Um, it's just words. But it becomes something quite, quite remarkable. So, the metaphor that I've um, written about is the... I mean, it's really pretty cliched, but the, uh, the mountain of spirit, meaning this journey that we take, climbing, summiting, and then coming back down the mountain, uh, I think is really, really, you know, it's fairly effective in describing kind of how this stuff works. Uh, I would also caution any of you who have, well, if you've read the book, you, you realize this to be true, or if you have not read the book that I wrote, um, I say nothing new in it. There is not one bit of original thought 
There is nothing in there that hasn't been said a whole bunch, a whole lot by people who have, in fact, been much more poetic than I. Um, that's not false modesty. I'm just telling it like it is. Um, there is nothing about this process that is really anything other than shut up, sit still in any tradition. A tremendous amount of stillness actually can come from uh, various other traditions that are quite noisy or quite active. You watch the, uh, for instance, the Sufi dervishes that you know spin, the whirling dervishes and so forth. There's a tremendous amount of physical activity that goes into that. And I, for one, can't do that without vomiting all over the place. Um, it's not for me. Uh, that Sitting still is much, I, I'll take the knee and back pain. Thank you. Um, spinning and spinning and spinning just didn't, never really had much appeal. Yet, what's really happening, those gentlemen doing this are allowing a freedom from body and mind in that moment. Some people get this type of experience. Um, talk to, uh, talk to a, a skateboarder, okay? And when they do stuff, you look at them and you're like, what the, why would you think of doing that? And the whole idea is, no, 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 it takes me out of thinking. When I have to take my board and jump and slide down a banister, with a 30-foot drop on one side. I can't be thinking about that. This freedom from our identification, our habitual identification with thought, really opens up this path in some pretty spectacular ways. What it does is it gets us into this space, and I'm, this is not to say that every teenager that shreds with his skateboard is awake, I would actually argue most of them are at the high tide, really the high tide, the, the most extreme point of ego. And this is indeed kind of appropriate, you know, for that age. Um, uh, and it's also not to say that every single whirling dervish is necessarily awake. Certainly not every meditator is necessarily awake. Not every teacher is necessarily awake. The point I'm trying to make here is that there is an opening that occurs when we are no longer clinging to opinions. If we actually can let go of our opinions in that moment of the surrender, surrendering those opinions, what happens is we're no longer bound, we're no longer confined by our minds. We're no longer confined by our thinking. This doesn't mean that we go through life or should go through life in any type of thoughtless way. Okay, A thoughtless way is when we deny that there is anything even to play with upstairs, that there is anything that can help guide us, that can help discern. What this does mean is that if we can enter our lives, every single situation with a certain mindful clarity, all sorts of stuff can begin to shift. Our way of viewing the world can shift. Our fearlessness actually get stoked, even in the face of pain, even in the face of bliss. We can begin to actually have a certain aplomb. It just kind of naturally and spontaneously 
kind of shows up, no matter what kind of, you know, heaven or hell is, is, uh, is showing up. And what's really beautiful is that heaven and hell begin to fall away. The opposites begin to fall away when we're no longer divided. When we are actually consciously meeting the deep singularity of the infinite, when we're bringing it in, when we're inviting it in, what happens is it comes in and goes out. We become simultaneous, simultaneously this repository and this offering of God. Sometimes you, you've heard it referred to as being a vessel. People with deep presence, when they are actually in a space, when they are no longer bound by thinking, they're no longer bound by body, by feeling, they're just present, you can feel them. You can feel their presence. And that, again, does not mean that they're necessarily awake. It does, however, mean that they are working with a different tool set. And that different tool set is uh, uh, something that we're really endeavoring to kind of cultivate here in this and other sanghas around the, uh, you know, around the world. Um, anyway, so the metaphor, once again, climbing up the mountain. Okay? There's no way you can get to the summit of this mountain. You can't get to realization if you're carrying all the baggage you thought you needed at the beginning. I remember I was doing some fairly, fairly serious traveling through Southeast Asia at one point in my life. And uh, uh, <laughs> there came a point when I started realizing how little of the stuff I packed I needed. I needed a toothbrush and two or three pair of underpants, you know, if, if I didn't want to offend anybody. Uh, uh, some pants, maybe a shirt, two t-shirts. Sandals, that's it. That's all I needed. I had all this stuff. And what I kept doing was just kind of giving stuff away. You know, by the time I got home, my backpack was really light. And it reminded me of uh, the story, uh, A Passage to India by E.M. Forster, where there's this character in Passage to India. Um, if I'm not mistaken, it would have been... Um, I can't remember his name. Anyways, this this uh, British British guy who just his his most beautiful line is "I travel light." All he had is a toothbrush, you know, and he just kind of became this, uh, you know, in a, in a weird way, a sophisticated mendicant, you know. Um, well, is that what any of us in this room are endeavoring to be? Probably not. Here we are in the hard edge of suburbia, and uh, you know we're trying to uh, broaden ourselves. We're trying to actually open to this experience of climbing up this mountain. In essence, kind of letting it all go. Which doesn't mean we have to reject everything. We don't have to, I mean, that's a fairly immature way of looking at renunciation. I, I hereby reject all of my material goods. You know, your material goods aren't evil in and of themselves. Your relationship to them might cause some problems. But they're just things. It doesn't mean that you have to negate your aesthetic appreciation for anything. By all means, celebrate that. As long as you're not caught by it, you're fine. 
I'm sure there are going to be some people deep within the tradition that are listening to this podcast now saying, heretic, but I'm used to that. Um, my, my point is that the summiting of this mountain and the subsequent descent really is all about our relationship to nothingness. Our relationship to utterly letting go of everything. What does that feel like? Most of us don't give ourselves permission. What happens when we come down the mountain? How is it different than when we started? Well, there's a lot less greed and aversion. Okay? There's a lot more depth in integration. Integrating this... This felt sense of the infinite, this timeless space between our thoughts, the now, really kind of intentionally bringing that into our experience in kind of a choiceless way. It kind of just happens. We become vessels for something much bigger. And we allow for it. We relish it. And we celebrate it. Kind of like we do art don't have to touch it. <laughs> I'm reminded of uh, uh, my second daughter, the littlest one. Uh, we, we took her to the San Francisco uh, Museum of Modern Art. We were looking at some exhibits. And it what, every single painting, like, you know, there's this beautiful Rothko up on the wall. And she's like, ah, I'm like, yeah, running, trying to get her, making sure she doesn't just put her hands all over. She wanted to touch everything. It's so understandable. You know, why a little kid would want to do this, all right? Stuff that was, like, uh, deeply textured and so forth. I mean, it's just, or that was multimedia. Not necessarily a sculpture, but that was, like, you know, he can build up just these beautiful oil. Um, it's almost like a sculpture on the canvas when you see it really thickly done. And she just, you know, it's like, don't touch. Oh, you know. <laughs> this, is the way, this is the way we begin to relate to the majesty and beauty that we see around us. Instead of grasping at it, we've grown past that impulse into kind of this, can we just appreciate it? We don't have to get everything. We can just be with everything in a shared celebration of the offering. I wanted to read to you uh, something from Awaken This Life, written by a Goofball. Lovable goofball, but uh, goofball nonetheless. Coming down the mountain, we see that even though we are in this life, we are not bound by it. Integrating an enlightened perspective with our day-to-day living reminds us that anything in our experience that we recognize as mine or yours is merely a thought tethered to an egoic need for satisfaction. Watching this clinging play out in each of our circumstances helps us to make choices that integrate, align, and source our living in the world from a deeply impersonal and generous space. From here, all life that we touch becomes imbued with a deep lucidity. We begin to share. Coming down the mountain, we begin to share. We realize how much is shared with us. We begin to see that the universe is here as a support to us because we are the universe. The universe isn't out there. 
any more than it's in here. And we begin to kind of, not just intellectually understand it, we begin to vibe with that. We begin to throb, resonate with that, just like a sympathetic string on a piano vibrates when you play a certain chord. Being clear with ourselves and others can take on many different forms, but mostly it reveals itself through decreasing our habitual and compulsive need for personal recognition. Our drive to, quote, be somebody, unquote, gently falls by the wayside of our newly conscious life. Instead of allowing the ego to manipulate circumstances that let it leave its mark on things, we align with an even deeper impulse that leaves no trace of a separate existence. This kind of participatory clarity allows us to dance with life, and this dance supports a commitment to simplifying our participation in the world so that we don't harm. Indeed, we become agents of deeply compassionate change in the world, change that doesn't generate war, but rather shows peace, since we see that we are the world and the world is us. The committed integration of this recognition within our day-to-day -day activity creates a space where all beings can potentially join the dance that always expands in the direction of what is helpful. Coming down the mountain, this is our task that we don't really even need to shoulder. It just kind of happens. We become helpful. We see that everything is an extension of who we are. Therefore, everything that we do is nothing other than helpful. We don't harm. With a little attention, each of us can notice that our lives have been filled with individuals who have either consciously or unconsciously engaged their activity from this type of elegant simplicity. Pick any heroic act of selflessness that you have seen. In it, you will recognize this dance of deep clarity. I'm reminded, especially this uh, last week, of Dr. King uh, and seeing this beautiful set of sculptures and so forth that are put on the, uh, the mall in D.C. They, of course, weren't able to have the, uh, the dedication because of that party called Irene. <laughs> Do you think it was Gaddafi with his secret <laughs> hurricane machine? <laughs> in his underground lair <laughs> and his earthquake machine those are old jokes but still crack me up I've said them already Perhaps you've known someone who put herself at risk to help another. Perhaps you've seen tremendous personal sacrifice in order to make sure that others might live better lives. Perhaps you've witnessed someone give so that others might have. The legacies of these people live on within us and without us. And at the confluence of within and without, we can always uncover clarity. In this space, between within and without, we find our big selves. When we inhabit our big selves, we stare through the eyes of God. And so this is the offering, essentially, that the clarity supported by a meditative practice, supported by a teaching, supported by people that kind of know what they're doing, teachers and senior students and so forth, tends to effortlessly 
within us at least, effortlessly create this spaciousness. We have to walk the steps that are pointed out to us. Nobody's going to do it for you. But the conditions are all here. They're always here. They've always been here. Sangha, Dharma, Buddha, or our, our, uh, our community, our teaching, our highest self, all of these things work together continually to act as, if you will, a shortcut. They help guide us down the mountain and up the mountain. And they even show us what we're supposed to do when we hit the top. Most people think, no, once I hit the top, everything's fine. No, you actually, you run a huge risk at the top of that mountain at realization without the right kind of container for it to become kind of a false awakening. A false awakening is where the ego wakes up but is never seen through. Okay? And some of you are very aware, I'm sure, of, of various, various people who have fallen into this category. You know, they haven't quite processed what they've needed to process. You can give a great Dharma talk, but when it comes right down to it, they slip and slide in some areas where, you know, you find all sorts of disasters that happen. And, you know, you know these, these are real, real, real tragedies that can occur. That's at the teaching level. On the student level, you find people that think they get it that their enlightenment is theirs. My enlightenment. Well, there's, there's still ego there. <laughs> there's still the division, me and mine, as opposed to you and yours. So we want to watch very carefully for this, within our own practice, that this isn't something that's really we can be possessive over. Okay? This is actually something that just awakens through, with, and about us. And we get there with kind of this disciplined practice of sitting still, of reading books, of listening to Dharma talks, of putting ourselves in front of people who have something to say that you trust. You, you, you kind of sense, eh, what she's saying is, it's taking me somewhere. That's a real beautiful thing. I recommend it. <laughs> And the neat thing also, uh, the gift that we have in this area, I don't know if, you, if you've really kind of fathomed this, but uh, we have so many choices here in the Bay Area. I remember when I was first starting out as a practitioner, I, I was dumbfounded by the number of men and women who had gone before and had something to offer. Little bit by little bit, you know, you kind of piece this stuff together and Next thing you know, you're sitting in front of a group of people talking about it, you know? It wasn't anything special, you know? It's just, you do it. You just do it. Any questions? Yeah. How you doing? Okay. Good. You're taking notes there and everything? Well, I'm taking notes, actually. It's part of my question for um, one of our members who's undergoing chemotherapy. Ah. I'm sending him or her. her. I'm sending her love right now. 
So one of my questions. So is the rest of everybody in this room. Is really relating to, um, you know, you talk about, you know, being with the pain of sitting on the seat. Well, having been with her last weekend, mm -hmm. um, it's really humbling um, and quite horrific to see what she's having to go through. The kind of pain. Yeah. And it's, um, and I actually send her notes from the song every week. Uh -huh. that. Um, and I don't know if you have anything to offer her about how to be with that when um, you talk about change and it being permanent. Um, she gets two days off a week, Saturday and Sunday, and then she gets hit by the next series of radiation chemotherapy. Mm. Um, she has throat cancer. Yeah. It's a real quality of life issue. Um, and I'm just wondering if you have, uh, I mean, I'm so, you know, really, I just think about it all the time. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything that you could offer me that I could send to her about how to be with this? Um, First, let me talk to you. Mm -hmm. Most important thing you can give her is presence. Mm -hmm. And the presence that you need to give her is the kind of presence that isn't caught by her and her situation. Okay, in other words, in other words, what we want more than anything else as human beings is to be seen and heard. In order to be able to do that most effectively, you've got to be really clear. This kind of goes back to what I was talking about. And the clarity is that you are there with her as her because while you may not ever have to go through throat cancer, or you may, you will die. Okay? Your life, like hers, is temporary. And there is nothing like a person going through radiation and chemo. Nothing like a human being going through those things that, I mean, there's no better teacher. You know? For you to be able to allow her discomfort to inspire clarity in your own heart and mind. Really seeing her, really hearing her, without trying to make it better, because you can't. There's no way any of us in this room can make someone better when they're going through chemo by trying to cheer them up. Have you ever had somebody try to cheer you up? Yeah, and, you know, of course you don't. No, 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 no. But there, but there are very subtle layers to that. There are very subtle layers to trying to cheer somebody up that can be felt in really subtle ways that they even can't figure out what's, what's going on or why this is annoying them. Sometimes the most powerful thing, I had this described to me once by a person who went through, um, he was going, he was, he was, it was a glioblastoma. And his brain cancer, he ultimately ended up dying, but he said the most powerful thing was when someone would just come in and hold his hand and shut up. <laughs> just, just be with me. So the being is just another way of saying presence. Now, for her, I would say, and I've already talked to her about this, be curious. Be curious about every single aspect of this. Getting hammered by radiation being filled with chemicals that are designed to kill. 
from the inside out. If you're curious about your pain, you're bringing a whole different level of conscious awareness to your pain. You're rec recognizing that that pain is asking for change, and indeed it is. That pain is basically saying change, body change. If you're going to survive, you must change. Can you be right there with it? I don't know. And I say this, I mean, it's got to be, so, it's so easy for me to say, I'm not going through it. I mean, my heart breaks. My heart breaks for every single person in, in, in every part of the world that is dealing with unspeakable horror, you know? And she happens to be one of them, and she also happens to be someone I know and love. I will give her that. My knowledge, my love, my presence. Anytime she wants to call, she's taken me up on it a couple of times, you know? <laughs> But that sometimes is the most powerful thing we can do as opposed to trying to fix. You want to be obnoxious? Go for it. Try to fix her. Try to fix her situation. You know? It's, more, it's almost more of a struggle with her. She's feeling like, well, I don't want you to come see me when I'm not doing well. I see what kind of even know it's about. Um, so there's all this behavior on her part about trying to protect me. Yeah. Is that what it's about or does she just not want you around? I don't know. Get in that conversation with her. Is a great offering right there, you know. I mean, you happen to be, I know you really well, so you'd be somebody I'd probably want around if I were, you know, sick, you know. Uh, uh, I'm guessing. But I also might, if I didn't want you around, I might be really nice about it and say, oh, I don't want you to come on. Finally, come on. I, I, I'm, I'm okay, even though I'm vomiting blood today, you know. Yeah. There, by the grace of God, go us. Yeah. Um, to be awake in this life, is it a constant? It, once you achieve being awake, I, mean, I don't know the word mm -hmm. achieve, but once you're awake, is it a process? Is it a thing where you go through stages? Oh, I'm kind of, I feel awake today. Like, I can feel that sometimes I feel like I'm awake. I'm present. present. I'm not clinging, that kind of thing. Do you ever get to a point where you never cling? You're you're awake in this life, you know, from here on forward. Yeah, I've never met anybody like that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, but I I have been in the presence of those who don't stray from that too much. You know, and they're very, they're very fortunate, very fortunate uh, individuals, and I think we're also very fortunate to be able to have them near us. Um, and I would do all you can to get your butt in front of them as, as best you can, you know, as often as possible. It rubs off. You know, this is one of the reasons why I think traditions are great, because they tend to cultivate, they tend to cultivate that. Also, as a check, um, I found this to be true also uh, in my world, um, always check with their partners as to how awake they are. Because oh. <laughs> they'll, they'll usually give you the dirt. Yeah. The second thing is, I've also found that the most telling aspect of a teacher is her uh, uh, stable of senior students, or his stable of senior students. If the senior students, the people that have been around for a while, show up if they're, if they're people you, you 
you know you connect with, it's probably a good teacher. If they don't, if you don't connect with them, you might be there might be something seductive at play mm. within the teacher that uh, may or may not be healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, teaching and teachers really act in, in, in sanghas also are attractive. You know, we, we, it's like they're magnetic, you know, and every one of them has a different flavor. Every single one of them. Um, but I found that to be true of the, you know, all the, the men and women that I've been fortunate enough to study with. That was one of the things I was told very early on, fortunately. Always look at their senior students. Always look at their senior students. What is it that attracts you to them? What is it? There's usually something about them that is utterly beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know? And we fall in love with them. We literally, we just fall in love with them. You know, and I mean, it's not, and it's not a, a, a sexual thing. It can be, but it's, it's not. You know, I mean, for me, it was. I felt madly in love with my my teacher. This guy used to be a boxer. You know, he's utterly beautiful. Okay, that's what a Buddha is supposed to look like. Was kind of going through my head when I was really, really kind of young and and uh, you know just starting out and so forth. And I went, eh, maybe I don't like him so much. Maybe like she's really she's really you know speaking to my heart in ways that he wasn't you know so so I kind of did all this sampling and so forth. I ended up oddly enough going right back to the guy I started with, and really started working very very hard with him. That whole infatuation thing had totally worn off by this point. But it was a really it's you know watching that process is just fascinating. It's just fascinating kind of how that works. I don't know if that answered your question, but uh, oh. Yes, and what I would say is uh, I still have never met, I've never met anybody who's, as I've always said, fully cooked. 24-7. Nah. Usually can turn it on and then turn it off. You hear all the time about people who, you know, like they, they're in front of the crowd and they're like, oh, you know, and then, then they go backstage and they start yelling at people, you know, you know, how come how, I wanted the spotlight? I didn't get the spot. You know, whatever. You hear stories like this continually. Now I don't have any. I'm not about to like gossip, you know, or send dirt on any particular teacher. But uh, you know, you hear about that stuff all the time. Get near him. What do you feel? That's always a good. Well, you hear the phrase "enlightened." Are you enlightened? I'm trying. We're on this enlightened path. It's yeah. Like, am I? Is a bell gonna go? I'm gonna go. Ding. Yeah. Who gives a shit? <laughs> Sorry. You know, I mean, if, if you, we really kind of put it down in really, like, coarse terms, enlightenment is a process that continues and continues and continues. And you'll find that when you're first meditating, the, the uh, you know, space between my thoughts, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? My mind is, you know, going like this, and the next thing you know, somebody starts going, gosh, you know, I finally sat for 40 minutes, and it was right there, this opening, this, ah, okay. And then the next thing you know, they keep practicing and pra- practicing. A couple of years later, they're like, they, they sit down on the cushion, and it's like, thunk, and they drop in, you know? And then you find that that person is actually able to articulate consciously from that space. And now we have a teacher, right? But while that happens, and it kind of expands, and it becomes much more, if you will, manageable, it's utterly unmanaged. It kind of spontaneously arises. And so you find that this, that this process kind of, it's, uh, it's almost like it uncorks itself. I would say, to, to turn this into my story a little bit, I have found that there are definite 
parts of my life where that is so much easier than others based on what's going on, based on the influences I'm getting. You know? Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard. Oi! You know? <laughs> but the practice is what carries, carries us. When I was uh, a stand-up comic, there were nights when I was going on stage in Coos Bay, Oregon, or something like that, birthplace of Steve Prefontaine. Um, I'm getting on stage, and I am, I am, I've got a low-grade fever. I've been driving all day. I am miserable, and my girlfriend called earlier in the day saying, I think we should break up. You know, Now, I have to go on stage and be funny. How do you do that? You better rely on your practice. As a comic, your practice is your material. So you get up on stage, and you know you've got killer material. You can get up there, and you can deliver. And then you get off stage, and you go into your room, and you cry into your pillow or whatever. Right? Mm -hmm. Same thing as a meditator. Same thing as a practitioner. There's some days we just don't want to. I don't want to sit. Oh, it's my practice. This is what we do. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yowza. Got time for one more question? If ever, yeah, please. Um, I hope I articulated it properly, but um, I, I read a lot of um, books by a teacher that has to with Pema Children. Mm-hmm. And you talk about... Isn't she great? I love her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's similar to you where she brings it very much. She has more hair. <laughs> she has more hair. Her, she gives two-hour Dharma talks sometimes. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, but when she talks about like how you talking about going up the mountain mm -hmm. and then going back down, mm -hmm. she I read one of her books. I forget which one where she talked about going down. Yeah. And like digging deep and like shoveling through your stuff. And would you compare the two to be similar, or would you look at the going up the mountain and version of going down and digging because I'm I think thinking that it's the same. It's totally the same. Okay. Um, I just like the view from the top of a mountain better than the view from the bottom of a hole. <laughs> and I told Pema, you know, <laughs> I told her, but you know, different teachers like different stuff. Yeah, she, the way she puts it is that like you're, you're bringing yourself down where everybody else really is. Like everyone's in that muck. Everybody's in that. So you're... So true. Yeah, okay. So true. Yeah, so well then let's, let's jettison both metaphors. Here's, here's like a... This one kicks ass. Pretend you, like everybody else, is dealing with your own suffering. You're in the muck. You feel like you're drowning. It's sticky. It's muddy. You can barely breathe. You've got parasites you know, eating away at your skin and so forth. And you just keep reaching, reaching, reaching. Until finally, with that practice of reaching and reaching and reaching, unifying every single aspect of your body. And another way for saying unity or unify is yoga. This is what we're doing here as meditators. Is It's a yoga. It's a unifying heart, mind, body. Just strapping it in and just saying, okay, here I am, right? We keep reaching and reaching and reaching. And sooner or later, we actually break the surface of the water and bloom as a lotus. Where does the lotus come from? It comes from the mud, okay? And 
expresses itself as the most beautiful of all flowers. And it's still in the mud. And you basically can go like down in the mud, come back up, kind of take a couple breaths. It's, and if you keep going down when you're like, you, you gather strength, you just keep digging. And then instead of being on the, t like your version is the top, that would be enlightenment. Would the bottom of hers be enlightenment too? Like when you reach the last. I would say. I would say it's all enlightenment. It's all enlightenment. Okay. okay. But you realize that when you get to the top or you get to the bottom. You get to the bottom, you realize, oh my God, that first scoop was awakening. I thought that I wasn't awake. You don't have to get all the way to the bottom to realize. I think you do. I'm not, that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be painful. But I think without that without the, 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 the work, so to speak, taking us right down to the studs, right down to the foundation of who we thought we were, and then blowing up that foundation, without doing that, it's very, very difficult. That doesn't mean, though, that it's anything other than a real big, giant reorientation. It doesn't mean that you suddenly are dead. It doesn't mean that, you, no, you'll still be able to live the life that you endeavor to lead. It's just sometimes things shifts, shift. It, things will shift in that spaciousness. Things will shift in that work that are really scary to an ego that's trying to manage everything. Suddenly when we start, like, stop trying to manage it, okay, we begin to actually have the experience of dancing with chaos. And then that chaos, which has always been an enemy, becomes somewhat of an ally in this work. Um, and that's exactly why it's so helpful to have the, the teacher who knows what she's doing or he's doing, the teaching that resonates, and the sangha that can help support it. We kind of went all over the map there, but I hope that kind of... Good. Okay, now you have to make one promise before you get out that door. Let everything go. Everything that I just said that made a lot of sense. Go. Go. Promise. Yes. Cross your heart. Yes. Hope to die. Oh! Okay, ready? Thank you. You bet. Thank you, everybody.